The famous quote by A.W. Tozer from Knowledge of the Holy is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to say that if you discover what someone thinks about God, you can predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. Right thoughts of God are not only uh, basic to our systematic theology, but they're also vital to every area of our Christian lives. I think Tozer was exactly right. All of the big questions of your life are impacted by your thoughts about God. What do you want to do with your life? Well, you should be thinking about God when you answer that question. What job should you pursue? What educational opportunities should you be considering? Who are your best friends? Does your thought of God factor into that? Uh, how do you know right from wrong? Who should you marry? Where should you live? How should you spend your time? How long should you spend on that screen? How much time do you need with that video game or scrolling social media? How should you use your money? What church should you be a part of? How should you handle this terrible circumstance you're going through? How should you handle this wonderful circumstance you're going through? All of these, all of these questions are directly impacted by how you think about God. One of the most important disciplines to pursue is to get to know God better. And one of the main ways we get to know God better is through our intake of the Bible. Because the Bible reveals God to us. It reveals his majestic character and his attributes, his ways, his plan to deal with our sins. Ultimately, the Bible shows us how God is revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did on the cross and in the resurrection. This morning, I want us to look at one of what I call the big God chapters in the Bible. All of the Bible reveals God to us in different ways, but there are a few chapters in the Bible that just blow our minds with the greatness of God. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a section in the Bible where God's people are facing an extreme trial, exile. They're going to be removed from their land and live in a foreign land for 70 years. Israel had forsaken God. The kingdom was divided. Assyria, the big bad guys on the block at that time, had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and had come close, had a stranglehold on the southern kingdom of Judah. They barely survived. And although God delivered Judah from Assyria, they would fall back into sin and God would eventually send the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and to take almost all of the survivors to Babylon for 70 years. Imagine that. You could be so tempted to despair. We're living in Iraq, surrounded by pagans and pagan temples. 
what hope is there? Our, the temple of God has been annihilated. Our city has been destroyed. Even if we could escape and get back home, what's even there for us? They had a big need to have their minds filled with right thoughts of a big God. Now, Isaiah is a big book. It has 66 chapters. The simplest outline is 1 through 39 is condemnation. And the kind of culmination of the condemnation section is in chapter 39. So if you're in chapter 40, just look back a few verses to verse 5. And this is the prediction of that exile. Isaiah 39, 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the words of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the, kings of ba- of the king of Babylon. Wow. So if 1 through 39 is condemnation, 40 through 66 is comfort comfort and in fact right after that doomsday prediction you shift gears in chapter 40 in verses 1 and 2 and it says comfort comfort my people says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins basically yes there will be judgment yes there will be exile But after that, there will be repentance and restoration and redemption. Now, in chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, there are incredible promises of comfort and restoration. And the rest of the chapter answers two important questions for Israel as they're, you know, thinking about exile and all that's involved in it. Number one question is, does God have the power to pull this off? Will God get us back home? Is this even a possibility? That's verses 12 through 26. And then verses 27 through 31 is the second question, does God even care? Maybe he's got the power to get us home. But does he care? This is special application to those who are discouraged and are drowning in the midst of their trial. So uh, I've often used the illustration of a penny. If you hold a penny up to your eyes, everything looks like the penny. Okay, maybe especially if you have two pennies and you hold them up and you just go, that's all I can see. It's consuming me. And sometimes our trials are like that especially long-lasting trials. I mean, maybe you've had a bad day or a bad week, but what about the times when you have a bad month or two months or bad years? It's all you can see. It's right up in your eye. And sometimes I've talked to people and said, let's put that penny back on the table and kind of get it in perspective uh, against the big picture, especially the big picture of our great God. So let your eyes go down to verse 27. And this is the attitude. This is where they're coming from. This is the heart that gets to that question, do you even care what we're going through? Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, 
and speak, O Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Life is so bad, you have forgotten about us. You've abandoned us. You don't care. As one old preacher said, the sweet by and by is crowded out by the nasty now and now. <laughs> it's all I can see. And these are continuous tense verbs in Hebrew. In other words, why do you keep saying? Why do you keep speaking? This was their ongoing attitude. This wasn't just like they had a bad day. This was the way they were thinking. This was their settled disposition. My way is hidden from the Lord. My challenging circumstances are hidden. Perfect tense, a settled fact. God is in the dark. My right, in other words, my justice, my legal rights. We're God's people. We expect God to come through but it's like our case keeps getting delayed. God, you don't even care about us. This is not fair. My right is being disregarded. If he does know what's going on, he, he doesn't even care about it. My prayers keep being unanswered. I don't know if you've gotten to that point in your life or been tempted in that way, but we have to step back and say, it's so foolish. I mean, we can relate to it, but it's so foolish because we're judging God by what we can see and understand. I mean, we start thinking maybe God's too big to care about little me and my tough times. He's disconnected. But Alec Motier, the Old Testament scholar, said that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is God is too great to fail. He's not going to fail. God is great. He is glorious. So for the rest of the chapter, Isaiah gives us two solutions to those struggling with extreme trials. Two solutions to those struggling with extreme trials. The first solution is to remember the character of God. Remember the character of God. Consider verses 28 and 29. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Back in verse 21, Isaiah asked the same thing. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? Sometimes we need to relearn what we already know. Isn't that true? You go to Sunday school, you've got the right answers. You know the stuff. You've read these things before, but you need to be reminded. And Isaiah is kind of getting their attention. Don't you know this stuff? You know this stuff. You've got this. You've got this. So what do we see about God's character in these verses? First, we see the Lord. And of course, that's 
all caps, L-O-R-D, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, is the everlasting God. He's the God of eternity. He has no beginning and no end. He has been there for everything that has ever happened. He will be here for everything that ever will happen. Nothing is beyond the knowledge of Yahweh. And he's always the same for it all. He is totally steady. He is the unchanging God. We also see that he's the creator of the ends of the earth. No nation or people is outside of his knowledge or control. He's not a local God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. So look back in this chapter and just be reminded of this great God. In verse 12, he, Isaiah says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man uh, shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. And behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Skip down to verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Let me just remind you, when you're watching the news and you're hearing these things about rockets launching out of Gaza onto different places in Israel and you start wondering about Israel's response and Hezbollah up in the north coming out of Lebanon and you just go, what's going on? Or over in uh, Ukraine with Russia and, and how this thing has gone on almost two years. Say, what's going on? And I just want to remind you when you're watching the news they don't have the little sub subscript down at the bottom with Isaiah 40 showing you God's got this this is not a surprise to God the nations are like a drop in a bucket okay you go to Home Depot you've got a project to do you you get some water in that big orange bucket and a little bit is splashing around at the end how big a deal is that it's no big deal at all God says, Ukraine, oh, that's, a, that's a little drip drop. Gaza, Israel, the, you know, I just plant them and I could just blow and they're all gone. God is bigger than you can imagine. And then he just adds the stars for fun. Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. On a clear night, how many stars can you see? Well, there's too much light around here with the city, but once you get out 
They say you can see between three and 5,000 stars. If you have a telescope, you can see 100,000 stars in the sky. There are 4 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy and 100 billion galaxies that we know of. Now, if one of those stars was missing tonight when you look up in the sky, do you think you would notice? I mean, maybe if it was one of those ones in Orion's belt or the Big Dipper, yeah, I might notice that. But probably not random star. But good news, you don't have to worry about it. God says not one of them is missing. He's got this. That's not for you to worry about whether the star is there or not. And God knows all of them by name. I have four kids. Sometimes I can't remember their names. God knows all the stars in the sky by name. He's really powerful. He's overwhelmingly powerful. And look what else it says in our verse, in verse 28. He does not faint or grow weary. Nothing within God wears out. God doesn't have a battery that gets low. He's not affected by any pressure from the outside. God never gets too tired to figure out or work on any problem. God never takes a time out or a break to recharge. Being tired is a non-issue for God. One commentator said, he is the inexhaustible source of strength. He goes on to say that his understanding is unsearchable. He has limitless knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. He has no loose ends that are too complex to keep track of. You may get upset. You may completely freak out by your circumstances, but God never does. He's never so upset by the circumstances. I remember uh, a pastor in Virginia, and once he said, God has no panic button by his throne, which I thought, that's pretty, pretty good visual. You know, ah, you know, help, I need some. God never does that. He never does that at all. Israel's complaints against God's actions or lack of actions are all wrong. They don't have all the facts. God has all the facts. He knows everything that's visible. He knows everything that's invisible. He knows everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything that will happen in the future. And he knows them all at once. And it's effortless. Who's the smartest person in the world? I don't know how you figure that thing out, but I, I looked it up. I asked Google, and I, I figured it out. Uh, when, I, when I checked this out, it was a Korean who was 50 years old, and his name was Kim Ung Yonga. Kim Ung Yonga began speaking at six months old. He had conversations by one. By four, he knew four languages. By four, he was solving integral calculus problems. Between four and seven, he was auditing college classes. Kim Ung Yonga has an IQ of 210. Just to remind you, 140 is considered a genius. Kim Ung Yonga is brilliant, but he has zero capacity to understand what God understands. 
Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God works on an everlasting, worldwide, ceaseless level and beyond anyone's ability to grasp. And he does this all the time. You're just sitting there. You're just sitting there. That's all, that's all you've got. And you might be tired just sitting there right now. And we don't understand all that much. And yet sometimes in the middle of our trials, we start questioning God as if we know more than he knows. And we have it all figured out. But look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is really more of God's character. Not only is God super strong in himself, he gives strength to the weary. And this is a participle. This is who God is. He is the strength-giving God. God is not missing in action. God is not unconcerned. He is here and he is willing and he is able to help. Well, who is he helping? He's helping, verse 29, to the faint. He gives power to the faint. This picks up verse 28. It says, God does not faint, but we faint. And God gives power, physical and mental power to us when we fail. We lack the resources to deal with life's issues. All of us, from the elderly to the elite athlete, need strengthening. I appreciate what Andy Davis, the pastor of First Baptist Durham, said. He said, it's okay to be old and to see your youthfulness start to fade in body and mind and emotions. I was thinking, what does it mean to fade emotionally? It means that this Thanksgiving in just a couple of weeks when those syrupy commercials of family gathering on the table and you find yourself weeping, you know, watching the TV commercial, you're supposed to be manly watching football and here you're a puddle of mush. That's okay. It's all right. Uh, we get older uh, like that. But our hope is not on staying young and fit as long as possible. Our hope is God who gives us grace to make it until Jesus comes back for us. He gives strength, power. He gives strength, it says. To him who has no might, he increases strength. He gives us the endurance to keep going on. So the first solution to those struggling with extreme trials is to remember the character of God. The second solution to those struggling with extreme trials is to wait for the promises of God. This is verses 30 and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So verse 30, even youths shall faint. So who is this? This is the high energy, very competent overachievers. And it says, even young men shall fall exhausted. 
the Hebrew root here either refers to chosen men, like those who may be selected for elite athletic games like later on would be the Olympics, or it could be fighting men. Again, same idea, those selected and trained for the army. But either way, we're talking about the best of the best, okay? The best of the best. Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. Now, when I was in seminary, it was during the time that the World Cup first came to uh, Los Angeles in, in a generation in 1994, but I didn't really know about international soccer at that time. I do now, and the World Cup is coming back to North America in just a couple of years, and it's, it's really exciting. It's the most watched event in the world. And elite soccer teams from all representing countries from all over the globe will be here in North America competing for the ultimate prize. But we just kind of have to be honest, there's not going to be many 40-year-olds participating in the World Cup. But you know what? There's not even going to be many 30-year-olds participating on any of the teams in the World Cup. They're all in their 20s. And they're not just any 20-year-olds, are they? No, they are at the peak of their fitness. But here's the point. Even the strongest human strength and endurance gives out at some point. If you work too hard, you will burn out. Now, I'm not super fast. I like to play sports and things like that. But my dad is super fast, or at least he was super fast. I know this because I was digging around in the closet and found his old high school yearbook. And, and, and it, I found his name and the nickname given to him in the high school yearbook was Speedy Kratz. No one has ever referred to me as Speedy Kratz. That's my dad. And some of you know my brother Jeff. He was the RD at Hotchkiss when he was uh, uh, going through seminary. He worked at the, at the university next door. No one would refer to Jeff as Speedy Kratz either. But my dad was. He, he ran track. He did high hurdles. And he did short races. So he was a sprinter. And when he went to college, he was on the track team at Old Dominion University, and he got recruited to be part of the relay race one time. I think there was an injury. He didn't normally run the relays, but he was running the third leg. But again, he's a sprinter, and he's really fast. Now, the field at Old Dominion, the track stadium, they didn't really have room for this thing. And so it was kind of funny looking. The two end zones of the stands went all the way to the end zone of the fields. And so the track actually went underneath the stands on both ends. Okay, does that make sense? And so my dad was running the third leg of the race and his team was behind. I think that the champion team at that time was the University of Maryland and that guy was ahead. And my dad took the baton, okay, the third racer in the thing and he started running and he got in his mind, I can catch that guy. He went underneath the stands and he was 40 yards behind the leader and he ran full out and he got 
to where he came out the other side of the stands and he was 40 yards ahead of the guy in first place. And all the people in the stands went bananas because this was like a home event. And so it's like, you've got to be kidding. What happened under the stands? Well, speedy crots is what happened under the stands. But then my dad said something happened when he got back out and he heard the people cheering and crying. He said it was like a 900-pound gorilla got on his back. And he couldn't go anymore because <laughs> he had just, he's a sprinter and he had given it all to come out ahead and he lost the lead and lost the race and, and it was all a big, a big flop. But look at our verse, even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. This is the same language for faint back in verses twenty. Eight and 29, God doesn't faint, but he gives his power to the faint. And now he says, even youths shall faint. Now he's talking about their, their falling, exhausted. And yet, what an amazing promise in verse 31. Those who hope in God will never wear out in their trials. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, waiting for the Lord is not just killing time. The root of the term is like stretching a string and holding it tightly. There's a sense of eager expectation. There's a sense of patient confidence. This is like when you're standing on your tiptoes, actively anticipating God to come through. It's very connected to hope in the Bible. Hope, the confident expectation that God is going to bring good in our lives. We know this. We're not just wishful about it. It just hasn't happened yet. So we're waiting on God. We're hoping in God. God's timing is best. So by faith, I will lean hard on him, knowing that he will fulfill his word. So listen to these verses about waiting for the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 27, verse 14. It disappeared. Where is it? That's weird. I looked it up this morning. It was there. <laughs> what did I look? Oh, I'm sorry. It's Isaiah 25, verse 9. There it is. All right. It's Psalm 27. All right. Uh, Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. 
And now in the Psalms, several other great verses about waiting for the Lord. And that's that one I was looking for before. It's Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't be afraid. Don't be fretful. Psalm 130, verse 5. Psalm 130, verse 5, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. And then Proverbs, very familiar, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. In fact, these verses often show up on the bottom of your In-N-Out cup. Proverbs 3, 5, I I have devotions when I go to (laughs) In-N-Out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. I don't get it. I don't understand, but I can trust God. I can wait for him. He's going he's gonna to do what's right. He's got this thing figured out. So our promise back in Isaiah chapter 40 is, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. You will find endless supplies of fresh strength. It's like putting on a new set of clothes. I'm changing out of the tired old clothes and I've got a new fresh set that's ready to go. I thought about this. This is uh, maybe not the greatest illustration for church, but remember Iron Man? Like I think it was the second Iron Man movies and the Marvel movies where his energy source was going bad and he was like dying on the inside because his energy was like poisoning him and he had to come up with a new element and a new source of strength. But to me, it was like when he put that new new element into his suit, he was immediately energized and empowered. And it's, it's like God is energizing us when we feel like we can't make it through. He, he puts some, a new element in our suit. And what does it say we do at that point? We mount up with wings like eagles. I mean, you feel like a little bird in a windstorm. God's not just going to give you a second wind. He's going to turn you into an eagle soaring high into the sky. And it goes on to say, they will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I mean, these terms, weariness and fainting, they keep coming up in this passage. The runner's weary legs are transformed into strong legs that run fast for a long time. The tired traveler can walk to a distant destination without collapsing on the way. These people can now do what used to be impossible and even more. And this is important. They don't become divine, but 
they have divine help to triumph through their extreme trials. God makes all the difference. So then here's, here's the important thing for us. Okay, how can I access God's great power? How can I get that? Yes, I know about extreme trials. Yes, I've got some friends that are going through some tough times that have lasted a long time. And we got to know how we can implement this and put this into our lives. Well, first, he has to be your God. Now, this is, this is assumed throughout this. We are talking to God's people. But even back in verse 27, where we started, where they're complaining, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? There's an assumption here. And so God has to be your God first and foremost before we can even start talking about how you can put this into practice in your life. How is he going to give you your you know, strength to go through trials when you're living a life of rebellion against him? You've got sin and sin creates a barrier between you and holy God. How is God in his greatness and his holiness going to become your God? Well, we have to go further in the Bible to learn the rest of the story that God is going to send his son. Isaiah will predict him as the suffering servant who will die for the sins of his people. But we know later it's the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to live perfectly and suffer and die on the cross in the place of sinners. Sinners just like you, rebels just like you. So that you don't have to be punished by this holy, great creator God. God punished Jesus in the place of sinners so that he could offer free forgiveness and pardon. So that he could become your God. God offers what we sometimes call the great exchange. He exchanges your sins for his righteousness. And if you, you can't earn this, you can't just turn over a new leaf and try harder, you have to recognize your sin and repent of it. Turn away from it and put your trust in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath against your sin that you deserve. That's the way you can have God as your God. Believe in the Lord Jesus because he didn't just die on the cross on the third day God raised him from the dead. Proving beyond any doubt he's the real thing. All that he said and taught and did was true and right. When he said, it is finished, the resurrection was God saying, amen, it is finished. The satisfaction of the sacrifice has been accomplished and it is available for you. So today, maybe you've thought, okay, I've got the trials, but really I've also got this double life going on over here that nobody knows about. Well, God knows and God is offended, and if you want God to be your God, make today the day that you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, and he will save you and bring you into his family, bring you into a right relationship with himself. So God, number one, has to be your God for us to access this power. And next, we need to know God's true greatness. And this is a never-ending pursuit in our lives. 
It starts out by just having good Bible reading going on in our lives. Intake of God's word. Read it. Make a time and a place to read your Bible day by day. And you will learn more of God's greatness. But also, take advantage of the access you have to great Bible teachers. Not only by regularly participating in church and Sunday school, but we live in a time where there's incredible world-class Bible teaching available on the radio, but anytime you want it online or on good apps, and you should talk to your pastors and elders about apps and podcasts that they would recommend to help you learn more and more about God. Theology books are not just for theologians and for pastors. You can learn this, these things too, and the more you know of God's greatness, the more access to God's power you will have. But there's another thing. It's not just filling your mind with data and information. You've got to think about it. You've got to remember it. You say, all right, that sounds kind of like sometimes you hear people talk about meditation, pondering it and thinking about it. Now, I don't know about you. I have a hard time just sitting there thinking about God or scripture. Uh, I, I don't do well at just, okay, just sit there and meditate. Am I supposed to cross my legs? I don't think so. But anyway, what, what do you do? And I, for me, huge help. Just having a journal, just writing down. Just, that makes me think about it. And so often in the morning when I'm reading scripture, I'll stop and then I'll take my journal out and I'll just write a few sentences about what I just read. Maybe I'll pick a verse. And that helps me to think about it more deeply than I would have. And that is a big help uh, to journal and to meditate because you've got to not only know the facts about God, you've got to think it through and, and fill your mind and heart with these truths. And finally, you have to wait. You have to wait, which as we learned was actively trusting God. That's the key to seeing God's power given and given in abundance, even in the midst of the most extreme trial you can go through. There's a little book that I read and I treasure called The Thought of God, and it's by a man named Maurice Roberts. And these are really just a collection of articles that he wrote over the years. And the very first of the articles is called by the title of the book, The Thought of God. And I love this quotation. It's so precious to me. And it comes up a lot. And it's, it's been one of those quotations that shifts the way I think about things. He says this, to have God in his mind and thought is the believer's constant source of strength. Then he goes through a couple of different examples of different people going through trials. He says, the martyr languishes in the flames, but his mind flies upward to God his Savior and looks forward blissfully to the glory that awaits him even as his body sinks to ashes. The imprisoned Christian forgets the harsh regime of the camp, the daily grind and grueling labor as his mind soars upward on the wings of hope to remember God. The weary missionary struggling with unfamiliar syllables and convoluted grammar in his appointed sphere of service sees beyond 
the frustrations of the hour as he remembers God, his exceeding great reward. The faithful pastor of a congregation entombed in his study and confronted with an impossible daily agenda of duties brightens in his heart and feels his pulse quicken as he remembers his master above. The thought of God enlivens all action. Now this is the part that's my favorite. The thought of God should be the Christian's panacea. You know that word panacea? It means cure-all. It should be the cure-all. It should cure all his ills at a stroke. And what an infinity there is in the thought of God. Nothing can approach in beauty to the idea of the true and living God. That there exists a being who is infinite in power, knowledge, and goodness that that being cares for me with a perfect love as though I were the only man in existence, that he loved me before I was born and created me to enjoy him eternally, and that he sent his son to suffer the agony of the cross to secure my eternal happiness, that surely must be a thought to end all sorrow. It ought to be, and it often is. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for our time together to think about you and to sing about you and to pray to you and to encourage one another in you. Oh, how our fellowship is often, what did you learn about God this week? And let me tell you what I learned about God this week. Praise the Lord for a church family that takes the Bible seriously. And God, we pray that you would help each one here to think great thoughts about you, particularly those who are suffering. Father, in our pain, we can often be very self-focused. And I pray that you would lift our eyes and lift our hearts off of ourselves onto you. We don't know all that you're doing, but we know that you are at work. And you, as our friend John Piper says, are doing 10,000 things in this and every situation. We only know three. God, you are glorious and great. And we pray that you would help us to think great thoughts, right thoughts, Bible thoughts about you and our trials. Father, thank you for the opportunity and blessing of being here today with my brothers and sisters at Placerita. And I pray that you would bless them and their work richly. Please let them shine as lights in this dark and dying world. And I pray that the testimony of Christ would, would shine from this place in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.